From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Nosebleeds, nausea, dizziness. The state says people who live near drill sites are at a higher risk for those symptoms. We'll break down the new findings. Then the list is long. 144 dispensaries across the state where marijuana was voluntarily recalled this week. So how is cannabis inspected, tested, and tracked? Answers from a man with a unique vantage point. Ricardo Baca covered legalization as founding editor of The Cannabist. He did a lot of reporting on pesticides. He has since joined the industry. Later, champion cyclist Taylor Finney of Boulder announces he'll retire from the sport. Years ago, after a serious injury, he discovered another passion, painting. I have no classical training, so I like to call it uh, emotional vomiting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People who live near new fracking sites could be at higher risk for short-term health issues, according to a new state study, health issues like headaches and respiratory problems. In response, the state commission that oversees development has promised tougher oversight of new wells. Here's the director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, Jeff Robbins. Our first step will be to take immediate action on permits that are pending that are less than 2,000 feet from homes to wells. The COGCC will inform operators that permit applications under 2,000 feet will be reviewed under the director's objective criteria and under the mandate of SB 181. That is Senate Bill 181, signed into law this year by Governor Jared Polis. It requires public and environmental health be top of mind when it comes to regulation. This new study intensifies the debate over how safe fracking is and how far away people should be from wells. Michael Elizabeth Sackis, who's on CPR's climate and environment team, joins us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ryan. This study modeled what they called a worst-case scenario uh, when they found this, you know, chance for short-term health impacts. Describe this for me. This worst-case scenario for this study is when fracking wells are in their pre-production phase, which means all the stuff that's done to get the well to the point where it can produce natural gas. So that's the drilling, the fracking process, the flowback, when the water and fracking fluid are coming back up. That's when a lot of activity and there's peak emissions. And if the wind's not blowing, those emissions can stay concentrated. So researchers looked at homes within 2,000 feet of a single well— study the emissions, and model and modeled what the health effects would be. Again, things like headaches and skin irritation, symptoms the state health department says are consistent with what's reported to their health line. Okay, what kind of chemicals are we talking about here involved? Yeah, so the risk of short-term health impacts was largely from exposure to benzene, toluene, and ethyl toluenes. These are volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, that are byproducts of this extraction process. And because they're volatile, that means they're emitted as a gas, so they get into the air. And benzene is known to cause cancer. And the study looked at one-hour exposure to these common chemicals. Again, in the early phases of drilling. Okay, we heard that term, worst case, and uh, in the early stages when wells are being drilled. But what what about... Like everyday exposure for somebody who's living near a producing well. Right. So the study didn't really look at that, um, nor did they look at what long-term health impacts might be, like chronic illnesses or cancer. 
And this study didn't account for homes that are near multiple wells either. This just looked at homes that are near a single well. As I mentioned, this study is adding to the debate over how safe fracking is, how far away people should be from wells. What are you hearing? calls to reevaluate how far away wells should be set back because the current regulations keep oil and gas permits 500 feet from homes, 1,000 feet from homes from schools. And this study finds there can be health issues 2,000 feet from wells. Okay, that could be a potential game changer. Yes, and it doesn't even rule out that there could be health issues farther away because the study, this model only looked at that distance. It didn't look farther away than that and say health issues stop at 2,000 feet. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg says he'll consider legislation to require increased air monitoring and anti-fracking group Colorado Rising, which backed a ballot measure last year to increase setbacks, is asking for a pause to oil and gas permitting. Now, the oil and gas industry has already attacked the methodology of this study. What are some of their concerns? That it's not based on real-life studies of people, that instead it's based on a hypothetical model of data and looking at these worst-case scenarios. And the state does say that since these are worst-case conditions, they would happen infrequently. But the study doesn't try and figure out how frequent those conditions could occur. And and the state says that one of its next steps is to do more research to figure out how likely worst case conditions could be. State officials yesterday said this study will prompt some quick changes. Uh, Outline those for us. Yeah. So the state says the study reinforces this need for limiting emissions and that the research is early, but but they're not going to wait before they enact stricter regulations. So right now, permits for new oil and gas development are reviewed if they're within 1,500 feet of another structure. This will now expand that to wells within 2,000 feet of buildings. And the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission says they'll also start to measure air emissions at sites near homes, and they haven't been involved in that kind of testing before. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Zakis, thanks for being with us. Thanks. She's on our climate and environment team, speaking with us about this new state study that finds possible negative health impacts for people living near new fracking sites. When you buy food at the store, you trust it's safe. Not too many pesticides, hopefully no harmful bacteria or mold. But can consumers of another product, cannabis, have the same confidence when they walk into a dispensary? We raised this question after a Denver cultivator voluntarily recalled products from 144 stores statewide this week. Ricardo Baca joins us. He has a unique vantage point. He was the founding editor of The Cannabis at the Denver Post and reported at that time extensively on pesticides in cannabis cultivation. Now Baca has a PR firm that works with the cannabis industry. Welcome back to the program, Ricardo. Thanks so much, Ryan. And for transparency's sake, I want to say that CPR contracts with your firm to promote the On Something podcast. It's a great show. Okay, well... I did not uh, pick this story as an opportunity to promote it, uh, but I just want to say that we have that relationship. You, frankly, have a lot of relationships with the cannabis industry, which is why we have asked you uh, for some perspective on this. I I don't want to be alarmist. I mean, food recalls happen all the time, of course. This isn't exclusive to pot. But how might mold have made it into the retail supply? Like, help us understand the forces at play here. 
Of course, you know, this comes down to cannabis being an agricultural industry and becoming this commodity crop uh, that it ultimately is, and we're heading in that direction. And so in the same way that you have these things happen with fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, with corn, this will absolutely continue to happen with cannabis, uh, not regularly. This is not happening regularly with Colorado's cannabis because of a really tightly controlled and regulated supply chain. Uh, but it's always a possibility given all of the factors at play here when you're cultivating this complicated plant that some people say it grows like a weed, but it's a lot harder to grow than a weed. Denver's health department doesn't say much about the risks of exposure to mold and yeast and that it depends on how much exposure someone gets to it. Uh, what, what are mainly the conditions of the grow? Are they indoor? Are they outdoor? How does mold occur? I know, you know, if you go up and down the West Coast, uh, you have a lot of legal outdoor commercial cultivation. You don't have a lot of that here in Colorado for a number of reasons, one of which we were first to regulate and implement. And so uh, the regulators were trying to tightly control this, and that meant grow it indoors. We do have a couple counties in the state that allow outdoor commercial cultivation. You know, plants are meant to be grown outdoors. So you can do that in Pueblo County uh, as the growing season allows. Of course, they're harvesting in the last two weeks. But uh, most cannabis in Colorado is grown indoors. Most of it's grown in Class B, C industrial warehouses. Um, and, and inevitably, you need a lot of forces at play to grow quality cannabis and make sure that that quality control is maintained because it goes far beyond lights and it gets gets into humidity. It gets into just creating wind in the facility. And, you know, of course, very advanced technological systems running some of these cultivation facilities at optimum levels. We have made a comparison to other agricultural products, fruits and vegetables. You know, in that space, you've got the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's involved. You know, you potentially have the Food and Drug Administration with other food products involved. In this case, of course, uh, marijuana is illegal federally. So Colorado has had to sort of become the USDA, become the Food and Drug Administrator. Who's doing the regulating? How self-regulated is the industry? You know, this is a brutal situation right now because it's state legal in, uh, you know, 30 plus states medically. We have 10 plus states in adult use markets. Uh, and yet still it's federally illegal, as you mentioned. And so FDA, USDA, FTC are not touching this. That's the Trade Commission. Yeah. And so when we look at, you know, for example, pesticides, as you mentioned, uh, the EPA EPA controls all pesticide use throughout the entire country. Even you using Roundup in your front yard, that's governed by EPA. They tell you how you can apply it. They are not telling us how we can apply pesticides to this particular plant because they want nothing to do with it. Uh, and, and in the same way that those standards uh, don't exist at a federal level, the standards for microbials and molds also don't exist. And so that responsibility to regulate, uh, to figure out uh, allowable levels of, you know, residual solvents or residual active ingredient pesticide chemicals, that falls to the states. And in Colorado, that has actually fallen to the city and county of Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment because the state in the early days, the state CDA, Department of Agriculture, was not regulating pesticides. And so the city of Denver was going out and testing these products for the residuals of these chemicals and actually setting their own limits. You know, these 
organizations at state and city levels aren't necessarily capable. They don't have that expertise to really uh, nail down these proper regulations because they don't do this for any other substance. Huh. And, and in fact, the alert, the recall came through Denver. Fascinating. Exactly. Should this give cannabis consumers pause, comfort, uh, questions? You know, I think this is an example of why the regulated market works, Ryan. You know, ultimately what we're seeing is a series of checks and balances. Every batch needs to be tested when we're talking about raw cannabis flower or cannabis concentrates and edibles. So they have to be tested. And then inevitably, sometimes things go through the cracks and, and sometimes a problem arises. But here, the problem is found. If it's considered a threat to public safety, then uh, DDPHE at the city of Denver uh, makes a move and makes a recall and out of an overabundance of caution, they're doing this to protect consumers. You know, my reporting a couple of years ago led to the first pesticide related recall in the modern world of cannabis. And because of our state's seed to sale tracking software, that one recall from the front page of a Denver Post story um, led to the next 30 or 40 recalls. And, you know, this is these regulations are protecting consumers. I think they should feel good when they see things like this happen. Okay. Ricardo Baca joins us, formerly of The Cannabis, now with a PR firm that works with lots of highly regulated industries, including cannabis. I just want to disclose that you have a loose connection to the company involved in the mold and yeast recall. You do PR for a venture capital firm that holds about 3% of the company. Are you hungry then for federal regulation and some national consistency? Oh, I think the entire cannabis industry is hungry for that. And this is a great example of that because when you look at what's happening nationally right now with this vape epidemic, this crisis regarding cannabis concentrates, oftentimes in the illicit market, causing sickness and even death, uh, the industry has taken this as an opportunity to say some of this lies on the responsibility of the federal government because they are the ones who regulate substance nationally. They tell us how nic tobacco and nicotine can be grown. They tell us how alcohol can be processed and retailed. And right now they are not telling us or giving us any guidance regarding this substance. That's fascinating. So you see uh, the, the cases of vape-related illnesses and deaths, I suppose, as a shortcoming of the federal government not having gotten involved in this earlier. Without a doubt, uh, the federal government knows how to regulate substances. They have the wherewithal and the expertise. Uh, state and city officials do not often have that. Ricardo Baca of Grasslands, a public relations firm based in Denver. He was also the founding editor of The Cannabis, a publication from the Denver Post. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now that more states are legalizing weed, the focus has shifted to legalizing in a way that remedies the negative impacts of the war on drugs. As reporter Natalie Moore from WBEZ in Chicago tells us, we can't allow rich white people, rich corporations to swoop in when you have people who were sent to prison for smoking or for selling marijuana. Social equity and cannabis legalization on the latest episode of On Something, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Olympic cyclist Taylor Finney of Boulder announced this week he's retiring. He's not only a champion, he's funny. 
During his first Tour de France, he briefly became the race's top mountain climber, which comes with a special jersey covered in red polka dots. An interviewer asked him about it. How long now do you think you can hang on to it? Man, everybody wants to know how long. Just live in the moment, man. <laughs> we don't do that in TV. We need timelines. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what the what does tomorrow stage look like. <laughs> we'll check it out. I'll check it out. I'm, uh, I'm hoping that we have some polka dot shorts. Um, trying to get that maybe a polka dot skin suit for tomorrow. Polka dot helmet. I'm trying to go full. I mean, it's Tour de France, dude. You got to go. So where did he get that Zen attitude? It's the first thing I asked when we spoke in 2017. I don't know. I sound like a real uh, Colorado boy in that, in that interview. <laughs> what do you mean, I sound like a real Colorado boy? Well, I mean, uh, this is a, a state that's known for uh, its beautiful mountains and its outdoorsy people. I live in Boulder. Maybe used to be more of a, of a hippie center. I feel like that center's uh, gradually kind of moving out of town now, but... Um, Maybe you're channeling a little bit of that. I, I want to say in all seriousness that you had a massive crash in 2014. It's painful even reading about it. And that was after a really promising start to your career. And uh, while you took time off from cycling, you got into painting, you started reading a lot more. But was that time after the crash transformational for you? Yeah, I mean, I spent my entire adult life as a professional cyclist. Basically, I went to the Olympics fresh out of high school, did not go to college, got a job as a bike racer, was paid, you know, under salary and moved to Europe and just started racing. Most of our races are, are over in Europe, so everybody kind of needs a base there. And once I broke my leg, you know, that planted me back in Boulder, back in the U.S., and uh, planted me physically in my body. You know, my, my mobility was limited, and um, that left me a lot of time to start to go a little bit, feel like I was going a little bit crazy in my brain. I didn't have the, the physical expression that yeah. I was used to. I wasn't able to expand my physical radius by jumping on a bike and exploring different parts of my surroundings. So, I found painting, which was and continues to be a, a really important part of my life, um, kind of an emotional digesting of sorts. What do you paint? Honestly, I just kind of play with colors. And then I, I find some symbols within either my travels or uh, things that I've written down in, in notebooks. A lot of it is, is kind of stream of consciousness. So there's some words in there. There's a lot of weird abstract figures and, and bright colors. And uh, I have no classical training. So I honestly, I, I like to call it uh, emotional vomiting. <laughs> emotional vomiting with paint. I, I, I do want to say that you, you have had some major high points, uh, competed in three Olympics, and you just finished the Tour de France for the first time. Uh, the last stage of that race, of course, goes through Paris, and you tweeted the night before that it was like a dream. How did actually riding down the Champs-Élysées compare to what you thought it would be like? It's a trip. We start just south of downtown. The whole way that you're riding into town is just packed with people on the side of the road, sometimes 10 people deep. I had actually never been to downtown Paris before. I had saved it 
just for this moment of being in the Tour de France and riding into the Champs-Élysées. And then once you get into town, um, once you actually go onto the Champs-Élysées for the first time, you know, you're riding up this cobblestone road really wide in front of you is the Arc de Triomphe. And there are these fighter jets that are flying towards you that are timed to fly the other direction, you know, opposite direction that we're moving. And behind them, they have, you know, when the when planes can put out the different colors? So they have the French flag. I think there's maybe eight or nine of these fighter jets. And you're like, where am I? What is this? I'm curious what you think about while you're on a bike for long, long stretches. And I, th- I think of this tattoo that you have that says pale blue dot, which is, of course a reference to the photograph of Earth taken from space in 1990 and was the name of Carl Sagan's book. Do you think of all of that big universal, I don't know, spiritual, I think you might have called it hippie stuff when you're writing? Sometimes. I think that I'm possibly the only one that thinks of these sort of things when when we're racing. There was one stage of the Tour de France where It was really long. It was over 120 miles. And we just kind of started off a little bit, a little bit slow. And we were already over a week into the race. So you're generally fatigued and it actually feels harder to go slow, um, at least mentally, because you kind of feel like you need to jumpstart your body in order to get your mind to follow. But I was riding along and I was I can tell you, honestly, I was bored. <laughs> I had probably five hours left of the race and nothing was really happening. We were just riding. We were going through France. It was flat. So I was thinking, like, how can I entertain myself? What can I think about right now? And, and I ended up onto the topic of time and movement, whether or not me spending my life, at least my early adult life as a bike racer, the amount of movement, you know, that my physical body undergoes, what that effect has on my aging process, on my ex- personal experience of time. It sounds very meditative, actually. Um, I, I do want to ask about your family. Your father, uh, Davis Finney, was the first American to win a road stage of the Tour de France, and he's now battling Parkinson's. How, how has that affected you? Um, man, in a lot of... Uh, in a lot of ways, I don't know if we have enough time to fully answer that question. Uh, but he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2001. I was 11. So most of what I know about my father, you know, he's been battling Parkinson's for for over half of my life now. And uh, it's affected me in, in a lot of different ways. The most positive ways that it's affected us as a family is it's really uh, allowed us to rally around him and around the family in general and our appreciation for the good days that he has, the good days that we have as a group is much higher than I think it would be without, you know, battling this this disease. I think that Um, it really says something about you that when I ask how this affects you, you go with how It positively affects you. Taylor, thank you for being with us and sharing what's in your head. Yeah, for sure.
Taylor Finney of Boulder, we spoke in 2017 after his first tour to France. He announced this week he's retiring. Let's remember a Colorado man who helped improve life for people in extreme poverty. Paul Pollock died October 10th. He was 86. Pollock founded an international nonprofit called IDE. One example of his work, he helped get ceramic water filters into people's homes. They're credited with reducing diarrhea cases in Cambodia by almost half. Pollock showed me the filter in 2011 at a local art gallery. There are a billion people in the world drinking contaminated drinking water. Their families are getting sick regularly, and some of them die because of it. In Cambodia, a lot of the water sources are from wells that are contaminated. In eastern India, there are 300 million people who live in a rural area where less than 10% have latrines. They do their business in the fields, and when it rains a lot... Fecal pathogens uh, go into the shallow wells, which are their source of drinking water, and they just don't have uh, another source. They could boil the water, but it's too expensive. That that requires heat, that requires energy. It requires wood, uh, and so on. And so this is a technology that provides a filter that takes out the pathogens actually in the home. And you can see it more clearly over here. This is the one uh, uh, that has uh, sold the most in Cambodia. And it's plastic. Yeah. You can see if I lift the lid, that is a ceramic filter. It's like a large flower pot. And the way that's built is a woman's enterprise in Cambodia takes clay and mixes fine sawdust in it. So when the clay is fired... The sawdust burns up and there are small pores which filter out the bacteria. And at the same time, they put colloidal silver. They coat it with colloidal silver. Colloidal silver. Colloidal silver is very cheap, and it's a way of killing some pathogens that make you sick. And so the water that comes out, because there is this spigot at at the bottom, how clean is that water compared to what? That water is uh, 99.99% clean. Uh, Studies uh, with UNICEF showed that a, a significant drop in illness rate. And every piece of technology in this exhibit uh, has alongside it a sign that says where the technology is used. So this filter is being used in Cuba and Ecuador and El Salvador as well, Nepal, Nicaragua, Sri Lanka, Sudan, Thailand, Vietnam. And it was originally developed by a group called Potters for Peace from Boulder, Colorado, who went to Nicaragua. And Nicaragua helped IDE uh, do this in Cambodia and helped a lot of other organizations do it. So in Cambodia, I believe we've uh, sold uh, something like 200,000 of them. And how much do they cost? They cost now around $10. In India, for instance, I've interviewed a lot of people. They estimate that they spend 25 to $250 a year per family treating the illnesses that they get from drinking bad water. Not to so, mention the loss of productive hours. That's right. So in, in a sense, if you can eliminate those illnesses, you end up cutting down on what you have to spend to treat the illnesses. There may be some who hear this and think, well... If this Paul fellow really cared about people, he would give this stuff away. Why would he make them pay for it? 
Because I've tried giving things away and it flat doesn't work. Uh, people don't respect something that is given to them. A lot of people uh, don't use it. We did a thing in uh, Zimbabwe where we couldn't sell because of uh, the embargo. So it was a relief operation and we gave uh, drip irrigation kits. Only 25% of them actually ever hit the field. The other main thing is... If somebody steps up to the bar and pays for something, you have to treat them with respect as a customer and understand what they really want. When you charitably give things, people often give things without consulting the person who's going to get them. I've seen tons of powdered milk brought to refugees in Somalia, and they cut the bag open, dump it on the ground, and feed it to the goats because they don't like powdered milk. They like camel's milk. And nobody ever asked them whether powdered milk would be a good thing for them to have. So when you treat poor people as customers instead of as recipients of charity, you have to really dig deep and understand what they're willing to pay for. And on a buck a day, they're very conservative. So by the time you get something that they're willing to pay for, you've designed it well. I just want to point out that we're not in a museum of science and industry. We're in an art gallery. Why is this art? Is this art? Design is creative problem solving. Art is creative problem solving. In the end, art is creativity in the world. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me here. Paul Pollock, speaking with me in July 2011, a psychiatrist by training... Pollock founded the nonprofit based in Denver, IDE. 500,000 of those water filters have now been sold. Pollock died October 10th. <laughs>